0: you would please, Isaiah chapter 46, let's pray and then we shall dive into the Word of God. Heavenly Father, we bow before you this evening and we thank you for your grace and your abundant blessings upon us. You are so good. You lavish blessing after blas- blessing after blessing upon us. And Lord, as we gather here tonight, we're mindful that we are undeserving of your grace. We are so unworthy of your mercy, yet in your goodness and in your heart of love, You have bestowed grace and mercy upon us. There is no one like you, Lord, and we bow before you. We worship you. We declare that you alone are God and worthy of our praise. May our hearts this season be drawn to you, our thoughts. May we meditate upon you, on your goodness. And, Lord, we ask you to do something incredible in our hearts. Lord, I pray for the children across the street as they hear the gospel tonight. If any have come in any of our services that are without you, without Christ, they're lost. May they hear the gospel. May they truly hear the gospel. Repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ for their eternal salvation. Lord, I ask you for your help as we dive into the word. Guide our thoughts. Holy Spirit, teach us. We depend upon you. We need you. In Jesus' name we pray, and amen. Amen. Isaiah chapter 46, the title of our study tonight is, To Whom Will You Liken Me? To Whom Will You Liken Me? One of the most difficult things to remember is that there is no one like God. Now, in pretense we remember that. We think, oh yes, I, I know that, I remember that. But there are often times in our life that we forget that He is sovereign, He is God, He is... He is in complete control. Our culture, and I would say perhaps no different than any other culture, every culture has struggled and has had its own problems, but our culture is becoming more hostile and more disrespectful to God. And obviously, this ignorance is a result of not knowing God. One person has said, What you believe about God is the most important thing about you. It shapes every facet of your life. And we as believers, we must remember and recall constantly who God is. Most specifically, that He is exclusive. There's no one like God. And there's no equal to God. God is not one of many He is one God revealed in three persons. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. All three are equally God, but all have their own individual personalities, even though they are God. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Father. The Son is not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not the Father. They're all three distinct, but they're all three one, one God. In our text this evening, you will see that there is no one like our God. Again, no one like our God. Look at verse one of chapter 46. Baal bows down, Nebo stoops, their idols were on the beasts and on the cattle. Your carriages were heavily loaded, a burden to the weary beast. They stoop down, they bow down together. They could not deliver the burden, but have themselves Gone into captivity. The first thing we see in the first two verses is the absolute inability of false gods. You can fashion any kind of false gods you want, and that god can do nothing for you. Nothing. Baal bows down, he says. Baal was, and and the phrase actually is translated Lord. It literally means Lord, L-O-R-D. Not capital L-O-R-D, but L-O-R-D. It means Lord. It was the chief of the Babylonians' deity, the national god of the Babylonians. It was a created image. It was not the true god. And notice what he said, Baal bows down. Nebo, Nebo was a Chaldean god whose worship was introduced into Assyria by a man named Pul, P-U-L. Now this is interesting because he names these two gods, calls them by name, these little gods, These false idols, he calls them by name and he says, Baal bows down, Nebo stoops. Their idols were on the beasts and on the cattle. The imagery here is when Cyrus came, even the idols were taken into captivity. Now, if these idols were something, how could they be taken captive to Cyrus? If these idols were God, if they were something, how could they be taken captive? They can't. What God is showing us is they have no ability to do anything. They can't see, they can't hear, they can't think, and they definitely cannot save anyone. They themselves were carried off. They could not deliver the burden, for they themselves have gone into captivity. What kind of God would be captive? If a God is taken captive, that means that there is someone mightier, stronger than He is, right? I mean, that stands to reason. And he shows us that idols are useless. They're powerless. They cannot do anything for anyone. And you say, well, we don't worship these golden calves. We don't worship these carved images. But many of us frame an image in our mind of what we think God should be and what God should do. And that is fashioning an idol in our minds. And it's very offensive to God. Why? Because God in His infinite wisdom and mercy and knowledge knows that these idols can do nothing for you. Nothing for you. And oftentimes we look at something as, you know, God may be this overbearing, jealous figure. No, God knows that these idols can do nothing for you. It's about His love for you. It's about His character of who He is. He knows and He tells us of the complete inability of these false gods, these idols. God says, listen, they couldn't even save themselves. And then He turns in verses 3 and 4 and He says that security alone is in God. Notice verse 3. Listen to me, O house of Jacob, and all the remnant of the house of Israel. Remnant is important because not everyone that was born nationally a Jew was a Jew that believed in the Lord. They were not all part of the remnant who have been upheld by me from birth. You know, all the nations, Israel's about the size of of, to liken it in our terms of New Jersey and yet all these countries have gone against her and tried to wipe her off the face of the map, and they've never been able to do that. You know why? Because God says, I've upheld you from your birth. Their security is not in the Iron Dome. Their security is not in their Israeli defense forces. Their security rests in the power and person of God. That's why we stand with them who have been carried from the womb, literally the belly. God is telling the nation of Israel and He's telling us in His Word that these idols are worthless and they can do nothing for you. That security alone is in God. And you know, being that we believe in eternal security at this church, I assume you do, we teach it. We believe it. I say we that's our doctrine here at the church and we believe in eternal security. And I'll run into people many a times and many people say, well, you all believe you can do whatever you want to be saved and all this. We've never taught that. We've never said that. We never believe that. We have just come to the realization that we can't save ourselves. We can't keep ourselves saved and our security alone is in Jesus Christ and not what we do. If you still think that you can get to heaven on your merits, you have not abandoned your self-attempts and you are not relying on Christ. You are relying on your attempts. And I will tell you, I, you, all of us, <laughs> every one of us, are as as, as, as we have about as much inability as these false idols to save ourselves. Our security is not in our ability to follow the Lord, although I tell you we should follow the Lord. Our security is in God. In God. The security of the past. I've held you from birth. Look at verse 4. Even to your old age, I am He, and even to gray hairs, I will carry you. God says not only the security of the past since your birth, but even to your old age, you're secure in your future. And their security was not based on the fact that they were good because they were a stiff-necked, rebellious people. Kind of like us. And he says, I have made, verse 4, I have made and I will bear, even I will carry and deliver you. That's the promise of God. And the security rests in God. But then, in verses 5 through 7, he points to the exclusivity of God. Very important. Look at verse 5. Now, these are rhetorical questions. The question has an obvious answer. Everyone knows the answer. The question he is asking is to prompt thought. Questions stir the conscience. God says, verse 5, to whom will you liken me? Who are you going to compare me with? There is no comparison. Why? Because there's no one like God. We can't say, oh, God is like this person. No, we can't. We cannot say that because there is no one like God. There is no one equal to whom will you liken me and make me equal. There's no one. We cannot compare you to anyone. And we cannot compare anyone to you because there's no one like you. And compare me that we should be alike. These are rhetorical questions that make you think and you come to the conclusion there's no one like God. I cannot compare God to anyone. We cannot say God is like. No. We can say God is, but we can never say God is like. If you put God is like in something... Then you're wrong. You're against the Bible. And it's a narrow view. I know it's a narrow view because it's the view that God gives us. And that's why we can't fashion these images in our mind about what God is like and what God. No, the Bible gives us the revelation of who God is and what God is. And if we move away from that, we fashion some kind of God in our mind and we humanize God. We bring him down to our level. We can't do that. I said it earlier what you think about God and what you believe about God is the most important thing about you because it shapes your whole life. We don't talk about God a lot anymore. Even in our churches, we've become so self centered. The first so many years of my ministry, I was counseling from the pulpit. I was trying to teach people all these things, and I made it all about us. It's not about us, it's about God. We need more sermons about God. We need to know God. We need to know Christ. We need these things because there's no one like Him. And the more we talk about ourselves, the more we bring God to be like us. And God is not like us. We can't fashion God to be like us. We cannot do it. It's ludicrous to think that He is like us. Now, I would like to say that we are like Him. But even that is difficult. Notice what he says, verse 6. They lavish gold out of the bag and weigh silver on the scales. They hire a goldsmith and he makes it a god. They prostrate themselves. (coughs) Yes, they worship. I find it interesting that of all the things he could have chosen... He talks about gold and silver. You see, in America today, we can morally be going decrepit every day, and nobody will bat an eye about it, but as soon as the economy starts tanking, everybody wakes up. and Everybody starts saying, there's something going on here. In the 80s, when the stock market crashed, there's a book called Counterfeit Gods by Tim Keller. If you ever get it, i got a copy if anybody wants to read it. It's a small book. It's a great book talks about counterfeit gods, and in it he tells in the 80s of all these guys, these financial leaders who committed suicide after the, the big stock crash in the 80s, whenever it happened. Why? Because we fashion out of gold and silver. You know, have you ever felt like this? And it's okay, because we've all had the thoughts I have. If I just had a little bit more money, I wouldn't have to worry. Has anybody ever made that statement? Sure, you have. Unless you're you know, independently wealthy. Um, but you know, we've had those thoughts. Why have we had those thoughts? Could it be that we, we're trusting in our money and not in our Lord? Could it be that God meant what He said when He said He would supply all of our needs in Christ? Yet we fashion and we worship the Almighty dollar, it's an idol and they bow to it. Verse 7, they bear it on the shoulder, they carry it, and they set it in its place, and it stands. From its place it shall not move. Though one cries out to it, yet it cannot answer nor save him out of his trouble. (laughs) Idolatry is about as far away from God as you can go. God is exclusive, and I love this. He says they make it, they bear it on their shoulder. What kind of God can you carry around? God is the one who created the heavens and the earth, and the Bible says he holds the earth in his hand. What do we tell the kids when we used to sing in in, in, uh, Sunday school? What? He's got the what? The whole world in his hands. God is exclusive. There is no other. And he says this, he says, They cry out to it, yet it cannot answer nor save him out of his trouble. God is exclusive. There's no one like him. You can shout to the almighty dollar, but the dollar can't make you healthy. It can't. Rich people die every day. Every day. You can cry out to it, but the dollar is all moral. It doesn't have feelings. It doesn't think. It doesn't do it. It just does what it does. It spins. And any other kind of idol, yourself can become an idol. You can set yourself up as the ruler of your life. But you and I can't save ourselves from anything. Nothing. We cannot save ourselves from anything. God is exclusive. He's not one of many gods. He is the God. And I said the for emphasis. He is the God. Definite article. There's only one. There's no one like him. He alone is the one that can say, I am alone. I alone am God. He is the only one that can say that. Notice God's call to remembrance in verse 8. In verses 8 and 9, he says, remember, recall, remember. When God says something one time, it me- he means it, right? When he says something two or three times, we better take note. Why does he tell us to remember? Well, I'll tell you why he tells us to remember, because we're prone to forget, right? Anybody forget anything today? Amen. Sure, we have. Some people say, like, preacher, don't even go there. I've forgotten so many things today. One fellow told me I went into the room one time and I couldn't remember if I was going or leaving. He said, I got to the top of the stairs and he said, I couldn't remember if I was going upstairs or downstairs. And I said, uh, I said, wow. And he said, yeah, it's coming. Thanks for the encouragement. Um, But listen, remember this. Verse 8, and show yourselves men. Men, be men. Listen to this. Show yourselves men. Remember this. Recall to mind, old transgressors. Remember the former things of old. What are the former things of old? What, do, what is he talking about? For I am God and there is no other. I'm God and there is no other. Adam and Eve. They could have just remembered that God was God. But you know what happened? In a moment of weakness, they forgot that he was God. How do you forget that he's God? It happens all the time. It happens all the time because we don't meditate on God anymore. We don't meditate upon his word. We don't think about him. We fit God into our hectic schedule. All right, God, let's see. I'm going to schedule Sunday morning, Sunday night, and if things go okay, Wednesday I'm going to schedule you. There are some people who take a few moments a day, every day, and spend time with God. But do we really ever just sit and meditate upon God? I love, I found this fascinating channel on satellite uh, radio. It's called the Billy Graham Channel. They constantly play Billy Graham sermons. I take my son to school and his friend. Guess what they're listening to? Ha <laughs> ha, Billy Graham. Hallelujah. Hopefully, it'll stick. And. I'm listening to this, and he preached a message in 1969. Billy Graham. And he was talking about how one of his favorite things to do is when he goes home, on to his, when he lived in the mountains, he said he bought the, the property for $12 an acre. And he said he was fuming because he had to pay that much. I said, $12 an acre? Goodness. But he had that mountaintop. They took cabins, these old cabins, and built one cabin, and that's where he and Ruth lived. And he said the highlight of his day... Was to go home, put on blue jeans, get a cup of coffee, sit on the porch, and meditate upon God and His goodness. Wow. Do we do that anymore? No, we meditate upon Facebook, we meditate upon social media, and all this stuff, the television. And as if our televisions aren't big enough, I mean, I got a big one, right? Oh, yeah, well, I got that. I think when, I think we've got a couple more inches of beer. One will fit here, but we don't think about. God anymore. We don't recall His goodness. We don't recall that He alone is God. I am God and there is no other. Verse 9. I am God and there is none like me. And I'm going to prove it to you. Name one person that can declare the end from the beginning. That's what he says there. Declaring the end from the beginning. There's only one person that can do that. God. God. Now, we can declare the beginning from the end, but we can't declare the end from the beginning. God can go all the way to the end and say, this is what happens at the beginning. And he's the only one that can talk about it in the beginning, in the past tense, and it comes true. Because he's God. And from ancient times, things that are not yet done. God can go all the way back to the beginning, and he can go all the way to the future and tell you things that haven't happened yet. And it will come true every single time. Saying that my counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. He has that right. He's God. He can do what he wants when he wants how he wants. He's God. And we can't say, God, that's not fair. You cannot do that. Verse 11, calling a bird of prey from the east the man who executes my counsel from a far country. Again, a century and a half before, telling you Cyrus is going to do this. God is the one that can call from the east and take it to the west and overcome and do his bidding. A century and a half. He calls it out. A century and a half before it actually happens, and it comes true. Indeed, I have spoken it. I will also bring it to pass. I have purposed it. I Will also do it. God doesn't give idle threats and warnings like we do. You one more time, one more, one, two, three, ten. God doesn't do that. God does what He says. He's not a man that he has to repent. Verse twelve. <laughs> Listen to me, you stubborn-hearted. I'm here, Lord, I hear you. Who are far from my righteousness. Let's talk about that just for a moment. Far from my righteousness. You are about as far away from God's righteousness if you are practicing idolatry. You're about as far away from God as you can be if you put someone in his place. Notice what he says in verse 13. This is key to all this. I bring my righteousness near. It shall not be far off. It wasn't Israel that brought their own righteousness to God. It was God that brought his righteousness to Israel. It wasn't you that brought your righteousness To God, because your righteousness is as filthy rags as is mine, but it was God that brought His righteousness to us through Christ Jesus. And that's the key right there. That is the key. My salvation shall not linger. I will place salvation in Zion for Israel, my glory. He was going to do it for His glory. Now, there are five things I'd like to tell you real quickly, and then we'll go home. Five points of application out of this text that I think are very apropos to us this, this evening. Number one, idols are absolutely powerless. They're absolutely powerless. It grieves my heart to think, and I don't mean to be unkind or cruel, but we need to call it out. It grieves my heart to think... That there are some who pray to the statue of Mary, thinking that she has favor with God. She will go to Jesus because she is Jesus' mother on their behalf and answer, get Him to answer the prayer when the Bible says to come boldly to the throne of God. You can bypass Mary. You don't have to go through Mary. You don't have to pray to a statue. That's idolatry. Don't do it. Don't do it. That statue is absolutely powerless. And we see goofy stuff on television, like a woman making toast, and she sees the face of Christ in her toast. No, that's not right. That's idolatry. You can't limit the God of all glory to a piece of toast. How ridiculous. And sell it on eBay. And people pay for it. These idols are absolutely powerless. You cry out to that statue. It can't hear you. You cry out to that statue, it can't answer your prayer. That statue can't deliver you. Can't. Because idols are absolutely powerless. But you want to talk about power? Let's talk about God. God is supremely powerful. There's no one like God. God is so powerful, he said, Let there be light. There was light, there was no hesitation. It didn't hesitate. There was, I mean, as soon as he said, let there be light, boom, it was light. I'll tell you the power of God. I was sitting in an eye doctor one day, goofy me. I was It was during the COVID, and I was showing Noah how to shoot a slingshot, and I was going to get an extra little pull back on it. Why are you laughing, Bill? So I pull back, and I get just a little bit extra, and when that when that, string, that rubber thing band broke, that thing went, went, whoop, bam, and hit me right in the eye of the metal piece. And I had to go to the, um, there was a little bit of blood, and I had to go to the doctor down here, the eye surgeon, and I'm in his office. It was after-hours thing. I had to meet him in his office, and we're sitting in there, and I'm waiting on him i this good eye. I'm like looking, and uh, he had this display of this eyeball. And there was the retina, the cornea, and the lens and all this. And I began to talk to him about it and he was telling me how all this worked intricately and it focused. And I thought, how in the world could anyone believe that two balls floating in space collided and we have this something as intricate as the human eye? How foolish it is. Our God is so powerful. He is not limited at all. But idols are absolutely powerless. Listen, they can't even do the basic things. They can't even see. They can't even talk. If they want to move from here to there, someone has to move them. And you got people bow, bowing down to this little short, fat, bald guy around the world. And believe it or not, it's a, it, it's, it is an actual growing... Buddhism is an actual growing religion. And all of it's utterly powerless. The second thing our text teaches us is that our security rests alone in God. I don't put my hopes on a political party, on a president. I don't put my hopes on any person but Jesus Christ. My security alone rests in God. I am not keeping myself, he is keeping me. Jesus said, you are in my hands and I am in the Father's hand and no one can pluck you out of my hand. No one. No one. And no one can certainly pluck you out of his hand. We understand that our security rests alone in God, then why do we treat God the way we treat God? Why does God get second best from us? Have you ever thought that? I know better sometimes and I ask myself, God, why do I give you second best? Why do I do everything I want to do and then fit you into my life? If my security alone rests in you, why are you not more of my life? Why do I struggle with this? I'll tell you why. It's my flesh. Our security alone rests in God. No one else. Number three, God is exclusive. There are no other gods. It kills me when some TV personality gets on there and says, Oh, there are many roads to God. No, there's one way. There's only one way. Narrow is the way. Broad is the way that leads to destruction. Narrow is the way to life. Jesus said, I am the way. The word literally means the road. He's the only way. Not a way. I am the definite article. T-H-E. Definite article. One exclusive way. Well, that seems narrow-minded. Narrow is the way. Take it up with God. Take it up with God. God is exclusive. There are no other gods. Number four. Remember what you think about God is the most important thing in your life. Do we really know him as his word suggests? I love it in our last study in verse 23 of chapter 45. I can't get over this. He says, I I have sworn by myself. I swear by me because there's no one else to swear by. He's the most powerful." What you think about God is the most important thing in your life. See, some of us are disconnected from God, even though we believed in Jesus for eternal security and our, our eternal salvation, and we're, we're disconnected from God in that we think that, you know, God doesn't uh, he doesn't really want to associate with me because I know me, and I'm, I'm a sinner, and I do all this and this and this. And God, it's not like that, guys. God knows everything about you. And God loves you in spite of what you are. And the fact... That he does that is the testimony that God is love. He doesn't just love. See, in our culture today, we love if someone does what we want him to do or if someone reciprocates that love. That's not God. God is love. It's who he is. It's his character. It's his character. And we don't think about that divine love that he has for us. You know the scripture. I love him because he what? First, love me. You and I wouldn't understand the concept of God if it, or love if it wasn't for God. You know, it always amazes me. Do we think about heaven anymore? Do we think about eternity? There was a study done some years ago. There was a shift in Christianity. Many of the old churches in the old day. They talked more about God. They talked more about eternity than they did about now. And somehow, some way, we upright, we, we turned that upside down and we began to talk about the present more than the future. We began to talk about more of ourselves than we did about God. Now we have so many different skewed concepts of God, people are really whacked out. We have to redeem that. We got to get back to talking about God. Didn't Jesus say, If I be lifted up, I will draw all men to myself? Jesus is God. And we have to honor him and talk about him as such. And what we think about him is the most important thing in our life because it shapes everything we believe and everything we do. The last thing I would say is God is the one who brings righteousness to us. Trust Him. Trust Him. Just as God came to us and saved us, God is going to keep us saved, and God is going to give us the power to serve Him. He's going to give us the power to know Him. We have the eternal Word of God. We can know Him. He is bringing righteousness to us in this book. He is bringing righteousness to us that we can know Him. Is there any greater knowledge than to experientially, intimately know the true living God? Can you imagine just for one moment with me what it must have been like in the Garden of Eden? Could you imagine... I mean, I I don't know this, but I'm thinking like 85 degrees, no humidity. I mean, perfect weather for being naked. Um, And naked wasn't bad back then. I mean, there was no one else, right? I mean, whoa, yeah. Um, Everything that they ever wanted to eat, could could you imagine the lavish fruit, the most wonderful atmosphere? No sin, no death, no hell, nothing like that. And along comes the serpent. I swear this is why, two reasons why I hate snakes. Number one, my dad was bitten, I was copperhead when he was young. He put that in my head that they're evil. I'm glad he did. And number two, every time I see a serpent, I think of the devil. I don't know about you all, but I just do. I just do and the serpent comes along you know what the serpent says to Eve hath God not said here it is Eve he knows that when you eat that, of that tree you will be like him i.e., you will be equal with God. And every day of everyone else's life since then, you have an eternal struggle of wanting to be equal with God. You want to be in control of your life. And the only way we can break that is to remember that there is no one like God. To whom will we liken to God? No one. He's God alone. He's worthy of our praise. He's worthy of our reverential respect. He's worthy of our worship. He is exclusive. All of the security I have in life is from Him the only thing I bring is insecurity God alone exclusive deserves our adoration and our worship for there's no one like our God Father,